Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, and thank you for tuning in for this final installment in our series on American Antitrust. We've heard from regulators, former Assistant Attorney General Macon Delrahim and former FTC Chairman John Leibowitz, their view of how our antitrust regime is applied from the government side. But what does antitrust compliance look like from the vantage point of private sector actors that deal with it on a regular basis? For that, we turn to the venture capital world, because the business of venture capital investors is to provide financing to startups and small businesses that, in their view, have long-term growth potential. When the venture cap investor exits the business, they often do so through an acquisition by a larger company, and that acquisition can have antitrust implications. And so I'm very pleased to be joined by my guest today, named by Fortune Magazine as one of Venture Capital's most powerful female investment partners, Patricia Nakash is a general partner at Trinity Ventures, where she focuses on investments in technology-abled consumer and business services. She's a board member of the National Venture Capital Association, and she lectures at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Patricia Nakash, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. Well, I really do appreciate you being here because it's an, it's an important perspective to have when we sort of take a, a really deep dive look at American antitrust. It might be first helpful, though, to explain what it is you do as a venture capital early stage investor. When you look at a proposal for a startup company, obviously you want to return on your investment. But what is your goal for that business and how you plan to exit that business to get the return? Absolutely. You know, and it might be helpful to start just by providing a little bit of background also on how venture capital funds actually just raise the money that they use to invest in startups, because I think that's relevant as we start talking about the whole world of M&A. I thought it was all yours. No. <laughs> I wish. I wish. But, and, and, you know, it's funny you say that because I think that that is sort of a, a conception that's out there, right? It's actually not not crazy. I mean, that that is a presumption. But the reality is that most venture capital firms raise money from endowments, pension funds, family offices, just a, a variety of sources who allocate their assets across a bunch of different asset classes, including venture capital. And but but I only raise that to sort of set the stage for the fact that these investors have options in terms of where they invest their capital to generate returns. And you know, fortunately, the venture capital asset class has been a vibrant one for many years in this country. And, you know, when we are, you know, when we are entrusted with funds from endowments and pension funds, we then look for investment opportunities across, a, a, you know, a variety of investment themes. I personally focus on early stage technology companies. And the aspiration, of course, when we make those investments at the early stages, our aspiration is to help these entrepreneurs achieve their dreams and hopefully build long-term standalone companies, public companies. But the reality is that, you know, starting a company is is really, really hard. Right. And founders take on enormous risk when they launch a new business. And most, in fact, and most, in fact, fail. I mean, that's that's the reality. But if they don't fail, it turns out that acquisitions are their main path to liquidity. And therefore, M&A, I would say, is sort of the 
is core to the incentive system that keeps this whole innovation economy humming. M&A, mergers and acquisitions, just combining companies, larger companies acquiring smaller companies. These are, that that is one, I think, what is in your industry termed the liquidity event, right? And so they get to they get to this point in their in their life cycle, and there could be an IPO, an initial public offering. They go public on the stock market. Uh, that's probably a favorable outcome for you. The other is uh, is acquisition, as we've discussed, and the other, is, as you alluded, is is bankruptcy. Not every bet you make is going to pay off, but the ones that do, I guess, make up for make up for the strikes. Absolutely. And just to kind of give you a sense of proportions here, you know, if you looked in 2019, there were 836 acquisitions of venture-backed companies relative to 82 IPOs of venture-backed companies. So it gives you kind of a rough rule of thumb of sort of 10 to 1, right? You're 10 times more likely, if you're going to have a positive outcome, to have an M&A outcome than you are to reach the scale to go public. So even though our aspiration out of the gate is to help our companies build sufficient scale that they can be viable as IPO candidates, the reality is that nine out of 10 times they're going to be acquired. So it's a very, very important path, important sort of incentive mechanism for entrepreneurs who are taking this enormous risk to start companies. So you have to spend a fair amount of time considering what the antitrust implications are. And we're sort of, I've spoken with previous guests about this nascent competitor view of antitrust and, uh, you know, a lot of this being driven in the tech sector. And, you know, even today it rings down through the, through the years, uh, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram is sort of the primary example. And I think a lot of people might like a mulligan on that one. Uh, so how do you, and particularly when you're evaluating a proposal, a startup for, for financing, how do you evaluate what the antitrust implications might be? How much certainty do you have in terms of what you're going to have to deal with at the liquidity event? Well, I would say today is probably not the first thought in our evaluation process, but I think one of the concerns might be that with the proposal on the table with Calera, that it'll become a very important consideration and and, and really with some potentially unintended consequences. I mean, as I think you know, Dean, I testified in front of uh, the antitrust subcommittee of the Senate about a year and a half ago, and I will say that there was one of the very, you know, sort of positive elements from, from my perspective was that there's really bipartisan support for the innovation ecosystem. I mean, people recognize that venture-backed companies are job creators. They, you know, they invest disproportionately in R&D and nobody wants to kill that golden goose. Um, But I do think some unintended consequences could come out of more restrictive M&A. In particular, just to give you an example, if a startup is thinking about challenging, taking on a large tech incumbent in their core business. Like somebody wants to start a new search engine, right? And they're going to take Google on head on. That's the type of venture investment where if you didn't have the potential backup plan, that if the company didn't reach escape velocity and was able to go public, 
there could be M&A as a possible right. exit, that actually makes you less likely to want to make that investment. So anyway, I, I feel like there's it's just an example of how there could be unintended consequences that lead to a less competitive future as opposed to a more competitive one, which I think is what everybody's aspiring to. Well, and it, but where do you draw the line? You've testified in front of Congress. You're very well thought out on this subject. And a guy like Matt Stoller, one of my previous guests, uh, who's a bit of an anti-monopolist uh, activist, has written a history of antitrust. But he would say in, in the Google, because my point was, Ask Jeeves. Does anybody remember Ask Jeeves? It's, it's you know, it did, it did not become the Alphabet Corporation. Google built a better mousetrap. They had a better algorithm. Their search engine is objectively better. And he says, yeah, because they went out and they bought all the smaller companies with the better algorithms. And they're really an amalgamation of a lot of companies who had better mousetraps. So where should regulators draw that line when they're evaluating these, particularly these acquisitions in the tech space? So great question. And I would say the vast majority of acquisitions in the venture back world are not about competitors gobbling up nascent competitors. There are so many different motivations, right? They can be about acquiring products and services, new products and services to introduce to an existing customer base. They can be about entering into new geographies. They can be around acquiring a very talented engineering team. There are just a myriad of motivations around an M&A. And I would say like gobbling up of competitor would be a fairly small one. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one way to maybe think about this is Calera as it's currently constructed, where the threshold is acquiring companies with over a hundred billion dollar market cap. We kind of counted the number of companies that fit that fit that bill. Right. And as of a couple of weeks ago, now the market's down a little bit this week. So it's, the numbers have changed. But a couple of weeks ago, it was 141 companies, 80 of which are in the US um, that have market caps greater than 100 billion. That's a lot of companies beyond the big tech companies that I think are true causes for concern. I mean, this is not just Facebook, Amazon and Google, right? I mean, it actually includes many companies that I think we would consider challengers. I mean, it includes Shopify, which has a $143 billion market cap, but is the principal challenger to Amazon these days. Right. So I feel like the scope of that just has pulling in companies and instances, which is not sort of, was not sort of the intended focus, I don't think, of the legislators. If you look at those 141 companies, over the last three years, they've made 117 acquisitions of companies with over uh, where the acquisition price was over 50 million. And I would say, you know, 50 million with that threshold, you're pulling in a lot of companies for whom there was no possibility of them being viable standalone companies. I mean, you're probably this is probably for some of those companies, this is kind of a nice soft landing, like right. a, like, like a job, <laughs> like a job for the team, right? Like it's you know maintaining jobs. Um, you know, maybe the entrepreneur gets a modest reward. Maybe the venture investors get some of their money back. So anyway, I, I feel like it's the Calera is currently constructed as a super broad reach. Yeah, because the sort of the implicit argument in a lot of this is, well, if you would just leave these innovative companies alone, if, if they weren't acquired, they would all become viable, standalone 
big operations. And if they're if it's a good idea and a well-run business, why does it have to be acquired? Exactly. And that does not reflect reality, right? I mean, and that I think is the important, that's why I'm so glad you're asking these questions. And and frankly, I feel like these are the conversations, you know, we need to be having, when I say we, I mean the National Venture Capital Association, we need to be having with Senator Klobuchar and her team to just sort of understand how central mergers and acquisitions are to the viability of venture as an asset class to the returns of the asset class, both in terms of making it interesting for entrepreneurs to pursue starting new businesses, as well as for capital sources to to invest in them. I mean, what would be incredibly ironic, I think, is that if by putting in place these sorts of M&A restrictions, it becomes less attractive to start a business and therefore fewer businesses are started and therefore <laughs> we are less competitive as a as an economy i mean that that would be right. that would be very i think that would be very uh you know disappointing for everyone well patricia drill down on that a little bit in terms of of what you deal with with regulators and so when it comes to that life cycle of a startup from initial funding to this liquidity event where they're either going to go public or be sold or go bankrupt. How does that relate to the timeframes for any trust actions and approval by regulators? Initially, before the specific proposal around M&A restrictions was put on the table, there was you know a lot of rumblings around antitrust enforcement or actions being taken against Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And I think, you know, both the DOJ and the FTC were interested in speaking with startups who had potentially had experiences that could be viewed as anti-competitive in working with those those larger companies, those tech incumbents. But the challenge is that the time frame for an antitrust enforcement action is years. And startups are operating on on much shorter time frames. They typically at any given time may have six to 18 months of cash runway in the bank, right? And they they have to be continually proving milestones and progress in order to raise more capital. So the notion of sort of engaging in an enforcement action that might only see results several years down the road, down the, down the road is, is, is just, it's just completely misaligned with the timeframes they're operating on. And now when I look at a situation where there's potentially elongated approval cycles for M&A, that is also concerning because startups, as I said, they usually have limited resources. They may be seeking an exit because they are running out of resources. Like, again, like this is not always like a glorious outcome. Like they could be sort of trying to find a home. Right. And yet, you know, they run into an approval process that seems like would add significant legal expense and time. Right. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but sort of, you know, this notion of shifting the burden of proof onto the acquirer and the acquiree that they are not reducing competition. That sounds like a an unwieldy and expensive process. Right. So so that's tough for startups. And, and you know, frankly, it also puts companies in a sort of operational strategic limbo when, when you are sort of in the throes of potentially closing on a sale you stop investing in certain things because you don't know if the company that's acquiring you would want you to make those investments. And so you kind of get into a limbo. 
which can, again, be damaging to the company from a competitive perspective if it's long and particularly if the transaction falls through. And sometimes they're making this determination of, of whether, you know, that company is going to, going to go on to do great things and the, the sort of the, you know, but for uh, what would Instagram have become, for instance, without, without all the resources of Facebook, it's really hard determination to make. It is. And, you know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, now with the FTC having its technology enforcement division, where they're looking back at acquisitions in the last 10 years, it's sort of, there's a kind of bizarre construct that if, as an acquirer, if your acquisition actually performs really well, like ironically, you could draw the attention of that enforcement decision and it could potentially get unwound. Right. <laughs> and, and that's like, sort of like, uh, I, I think that could have a chilling effect also. I mean, yeah. I, I guess a lot of these, I, a lot of these initiatives I view as potentially having a chilling effect on M&A in the venture-backed world. Patricia, these massive technology companies uh, that come up again and again in this context, Facebook, Amazon, Google, I'm wondering if you have a view, because this is many decades after they have left the safe confines of Trinity Ventures and uh, <laughs> have become you know, giant behemoths that, that seem to be involved in, in every part of our life, particularly the, you know, the, the four bigs. Do you think any of them have reached a point where this sort of standard oil antitrust breakup is warranted? Well, look, I, I guess what I would say is, and I think it's a view that's that's you know widely shared among venture capitalists, which is, look, we're sort of of two minds with regards to these large tech companies. I mean, on the one hand, we really want our early stage companies to get a fair shake in the marketplace, and we want them to be able to operate on a level playing field. And, you know, there are instances of sort of large tech companies kind of taking advantage of their platform dominance to introduce new products and services in a, in a way that is sort of where the playing field isn't level, right? So I would say there's broad recognition of that and sort of, and I think, you know, I think there would be support and interest around any steps that could be taken to kind of level the playing field. Right. On the other hand, we recognize that these large tech incumbents are very important parts of our ecosystem. I mean, in many instances, they are distribution partners, they are customers, they are sources of future entrepreneurial talent. I mean, we have lots of great entrepreneurs who come out of these companies, right, and go on to start the next great company, and they are acquirers. So I think we feel like they're very important parts of the ecosystem, but I do believe this sort of, you know, targeted action to sort of ensure a level playing field is something that, you know, would be welcome. Well, of course, these companies, and, and I'm sure many of the ones uh, with which you deal are, are part of a global economy. We're, we're in global competition uh, with the EU, with China. I'm curious how, in your view, American antitrust regulators uh, compare, particularly in the acquisition restrictions to our global competitors, and how do these restrictions impact our own innovation ecosystem relative to those global competitors? I worry that we take this incredible, what I view as incredible, innovation ecosystem for granted. I mean, if you look at the share of worldwide venture capital dollars that have been deployed in the U.S., it has declined from 90% to 50% over the last 20 years. So I would say on an absolute basis, VC dollars deployed in the U.S. has probably grown. 
but on a relative basis, our share has declined. And and I think that as we introduce more friction into our ecosystem, we could further erode our global position. And I view M&A restrictions as being one of those things. I, you know, CFIUS was one, you know, the CFIUS right. restrictions that we all understood why those need to exist, but they do introduce friction into sort of the, you know, the whole sort of funding cycle around our startups. Immigration law is another one. So, you know, we could end up giving other countries an advantage if their startups are not hampered by the same types of M&A restrictions. Because, look, again, we're talking about capital sources that have global reach. The endowments and pensions funds that invest in U.S. venture funds also invest in global venture funds. And, And if the startups they're investing in have unhampered ability to seek liquidity through M&A versus IPO, that's an advantage. Um, And, you know, look, I look at a time like this in the U.S. post-pandemic where job creation has never been more important. I would not advise hampering a corner of our economy that is all about job creation. Well, what a time to be alive. And I'm really curious as someone on the front lines of American capitalism We've been in this self-imposed shutdown uh, in response to the pandemic. How, how has that impacted your business? And I'm just curious, for this second decade of the 21st century, do you find yourself an optimist or a pessimist? Look, if you're in this business of venture capital, you're most likely an optimist. <laughs> so I will, I will be, I'm an avowed optimist um, and continue to be so. But this is, I would say it's been, the past year has been a roller coaster as it has been for so many, where with all the unknowns and uncertainty and risk that we were facing last March. And when you think about all the uncertainty and risk that entrepreneurs face, and then and then this, this thing completely out of their control, just kind of, it like punches them in the face, right? It's sort of like, okay, here's a whole new, new bundle of risk that I have to feel, figure out how to deal with. But I think, you know, look, for a lot of these companies, they were maybe better suited than most to be able to work remotely. And they, they're used to being pretty nimble. So, you know, many of them adjusted pretty fast to the uncertain future. And then it has kind of sorted itself out, right? There's some sectors that are going gangbusters, went gangbusters through COVID. And then there, and, and some, some which were surprising, by the way, like, you know, residential home sales or, you know, like, right. there's some areas that were surprisingly robust. And then others where, you know, if you're serving, if you're serving the office market, it was a tough time for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm in, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in an office building in downtown DC that, and I'm the only one here. Um, yeah. very so you're safe though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't even get to ask you about SPACs, but maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll come back and do that another time. This is fascinating. Patricia Nakash, thank you so much for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks so much for including me, Dean. Appreciate it.